0: Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. My name is Brooke McCallery. And my name is Ben McCallery. Welcome to Episode 5 of Season 9. Thank you very much. In this episode, like a lot of series in recent times, you speak to a permaculturalist. Yeah, I I mean, I think permaculture has by almost by default ended up one of the threads throughout the whole slow home podcast because there is just so many points at which there's overlap you know and i think that they there's there's often a lot to be learnt about slow living from permaculture mm. and i've just find myself drawn to it and you know have over the past few years started to understand a little more about what it actually is, which is not just organic gardening, you know, it's a whole philosophy, um, and I'm really excited to to talk in today's episode to Brenna Quinlan, who, if you are at all even engaged with the permaculture scene, I'm sure you will have seen her work. She is an illustrator, and um, her illustrations are in um, Milkwood's book. They're all over Instagram. She's worked with a whole heap of other authors and permaculturalists and creators, and just as a standalone creator herself is brilliant. So I was really excited to to be able to talk to her. Based in Western Australia? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So her and her partner, uh, and we talk about this in the episode, so I don't want to cannibalise the episode, um, they've recently moved, you know, during um, COVID, over to an intentional community, mm. and we talk a lot about what that looks like, what that means um, you know, the home that they're creating, the garden that they're creating, what it what it actually looks like in a practical day-to-day sense to live in an intentional community. Uh, and it's really cool. I saw one of those on Gardening Australia recently, I think. Oh, yeah. Actually, yes. That was just, we watched an episode this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. And that was smaller. This is like, um, this, that was an urban mm-hmm. example. Uh, the one that Brenna and her partner live at is... Um, regional I guess I'm not entirely sure how close to a town it is but people are on much larger plots yeah and it's it's just cool it's really inspiring to see some of the alternate ways that people are are starting to a build community of like-minded people but also to pull resources yeah you know um, of all kinds so that that makes up a a chunk of the conversation but obviously being an illustrator Brenna and I also talk a lot about creativity um, and she has this wonderful ability to take complex ideas, really like complex ideas, and present them so simply and joyfully. And it's such a, such a skill. Uh, and what comes through her work is this innate sense of um, positivity. She's really about solutions-based activism. There's no doom and gloom with Brenna, um, you know, and I, I really appreciated that. And I think that people listening will appreciate that too because, as we all know, there is so much to be stressed and overwhelmed and frightened by. To listen to someone who is just so committed to positive solutions-based activism um, is brilliant. And so people can head over to the show notes and also slowyourhome.com slash... Season 9. Season 9. Apparently that page had not been working. Someone emailed me. Mm. I've checked and it appears to be, but if you... Go to um, slash season nine over on Slow Your Home, and it's not working. Just sling me a sling, swing, an arrow, sling me in. Yep, one of those. Send you an arrow, send me an arrow, please, or a carrier pigeon. Yep, (laughs) let me know. But you can also, but you can also, and I would encourage you actually to go and find Brenna's work online. So she's at BrennaQuinland.com. Um, You can find links to all of her illustrations, her products. She uh, she also works as a permaculture illustrator in schools and with kids, Uh, and I think that's such a brilliant and exciting kind of element to her work. So if that's something that you're interested in, you're an educator, you work in um, schools, definitely go and check her out at BrennaQuinland.com, and you can also follow her on uh, Instagram at Brenna Brilliant. We hope you enjoy the episode, Brenna. Hello, how are you? Hey, so so good this morning, Brooke. So good to be here. So good to see you and e- meet you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I've been a fan of your work for a long time, so I'm um, quietly thrilled that you are here and that we get to talk about creativity and art as activism and everything else that you've created in your sphere in the world. Um, and I want to get straight into it because. What I see at the heart and the root of your work um, is, I suppose, permaculture. And I've spoken about permaculture a bit on the podcast before. I've had guests before who talk about it. Um, And it's sort of three principles of earth care, people care and fair share. And that imbues everything that I see of your work. Have you always operated in the sphere of permaculture or did you go through a process of discovering it? I had quite a suburban
1: upbringing. Um, and then went to university and my focus was really around art I studied fine art I studied journalism and so that was I guess my outlet for something meaningful and after all that I just I was doing all the right things as an artist you know exhibiting and um, we were organizing group shows as well and gaining connections with galleries and the right sorts of people but there was still this kind of emptiness in me like what what am I doing is this is selling artwork to rich people really the goal here? Like, I know you can you can include a lot of meaning in those artworks, but was that really the game that I wanted to play for the rest of my life? And so I went overseas and ended up being over there for six years. And in that time, I didn't have very much money, so I was volunteering at all these places, hearing about big ideas like sustainability and climate change and permaculture. I was seeing people who were living in a much more regenerative lifestyle. Like when you stay with someone for weeks or months on end, you really get an insight into who they are, how their family functions, how they organise their lives. And the happiest people seem to be the ones that were growing their food, that were in, engaged with community, that had an outlet for activism. And normally these are the ones who were talking about this thing called permaculture. So I started reading a bit. I ended up doing a permaculture design course over in Chile in Spanish. That's a two-week long uh, residential course that they offer all over the world. Millions of people have done this course worldwide. And it's a real game-changing moment for almost everyone who does it. You spend two weeks in this old alternate reality with 24 other people who are trying to shake up their lives and who are wondering, you know, where meaning is going to come from for them and you learn about the science of climate change and biology and ecology and soil science and design thinking, um, pattern languages, all of these amazing tools that then arm you to go out in the world and reconnect with the world around us in a way that's that really lends itself to positive Um, solutions based activism so that happened and I thought wow permaculture really it was kind of what I was searching for it's not just about organic gardening it's about a life based on ethics and principles like you're saying so it it brought together all the disparate elements of environmentalism and activism that I've been learning about and seeing and hearing about into sort of one handy package so from then on I thought okay I want more of this um I asked my teacher what's the best way to make change in the world for you and he said for me it's teaching permaculture courses i've taught thousands of people and and each of them goes on to do great things in their sphere and so i thought all right i'll keep that in mind and i started teaching permaculture courses and eventually managed to overlap my artwork with permaculture or, or what i call solutions oriented activism as well so it just unfolded from that but that course was really a um, a real turning point for me. It just it brought so much clarity,
0: yeah. and I uh, from the all the conversations I've had with people who have done a PDC or have really immersed themselves in permaculture, it's much um it's a, a similar kind of experience in that it's like first of all discovering what it is, which is far more expansive than I ever understood permaculture to be, because I was like, oh, yeah, it's like organic gardening, you know, um, it's so much more community minded and expansive and inclusive what i love is that you were kind of on this i guess going through this process of uncovering your values and then you found permaculture and everything that that kind of fed into it and not only found an alignment there but um also did that work to to kind of deepen your own values around it um did you do that i'm fascinated by values and how people kind of arrive at theirs did you do that as a like a purposeful exercise um or was it more an organic thing that you excavated over time
1: I think when I left Australia to go on that kind of you know cliched young person pilgrimage trip overseas (laughs) it it was with that in mind yeah there was just you know I felt very stuck Mm. and I had enough savings to get a one-way ticket out of Australia and by the time I came back, I'd, I'd changed so completely that I didn't want to fly again. You know, it was, it was. we, we were looking into like boats and I actually, to get from Canada down to South America, I actually rode a bicycle because I was so, you know, my values had so entrenched themselves that that the carbon emissions associated with a flight trip were so in the forefront of my mind. And so I knew from listening to other people that by, leaving yourself open to new experiences and and that can take the form of volunteering with a community group at home you know it doesn't I know now it doesn't you don't have to go that far to find it but that um you do gain clarity around things that are quite hazy like what are your values and yeah since they kind of coalesced in that permaculture course I mean they make it really easy They say here's 12 principles and three ethics and you know, somewhere in these, we, we can all find something we can relate to. They, they can all speak to us on our individual level. Everyone has a slightly different take on what earth care or people care means. Yeah. Once that happens, it's like a light bulb turned on in my mind saying, all right, this is, this is the way you're living now. If it's not earth care, people care, fair share, it's not aligned with your take on these values. It's not worth doing. And you see examples of this, you know, there are projects that are all about the earth care, maybe they're all about planting trees, but actually, the people who are employed to plant the trees aren't treated well, so they're missing part of the picture. Or, you know, a, a group that's all about you see it in activist camps, you know, people locking on the forest, and it's all about saving the forest at, at any cost, and, and then everyone involved with it burns out and feels mm-hmm. horrible and never wants to do it again. That's lacking one side of the issue. So, that's what really resonated with me is having that. Complete holistic picture, thinking about all the elements, um, and building my values on that.
0: Yeah, and I think that word holistic is exactly what I was kind of thinking when you were explaining those things. And they they are valid and they are valuable. You know, people defending forests at all costs, but it's the at all costs that it worries me because you have people who care so deeply, but there isn't the um, the flip side of that. You know, there isn't the protection of self. We can't keep you know, we can't keep showing up in these massive ways if we're burnt out, um, you know, so it's more about developing ways of advocating becoming an activist in a way that isn't going to leave us like a husk of a human being.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm a big believer in that. And Once I realised that I could do permaculture through my art, I could be an activist through what I love, what brings me real joy, which is communicating big messages through illustration um, it, it sort of freed me up. Like, wow, this is, it's something that I do anyway. It's something that nourishes me on a really deep level. And so in that way, it's sustainable for me. Mm. It's, it's an activism that I can keep doing over time. It it evolves when I evolve. It grows when I grow. It helps other people in a huge way. And there's a million and one examples of what, you know, everyone has their own form of activism. If If you're a parent, if you're a teacher, if you're, if you love people, you know, your form of activism is people. Then if you're an introvert, but you're really good at sewing, maybe, you know, visible mending is your form of activism. And my mom happens to have taken that up as her as her thing. She's taken diverting clothing from landfill by mending things that would otherwise be thrown away. So there's there's so many examples of finding out what yours is. It helps you wake up every day and think, gosh, today I'm going to make a difference. Today I get to be an activist and do all my craft projects or, you know, whatever it yeah. is.
0: Uh, And I I love that because I think there would be people listening going, that's wonderful. You know, Brenna's found her, you know, the cross point where activism and her art join. What is that for me? So I think it's kind of going back to your values and the things that fill you up and light you up and looking for opportunities for that to become your advocacy, your activism. Um, And I think that take it, that in itself is a really cool creative process. You know, you can get a piece of paper and think about all the stuff you love doing and then look for the places that it it crosses with the things that you care about. Because um, I genuinely think that if the world was full of people who were able to be activists to but, but also be fulfilled and cared for from within, um, it would change the fabric of our society like I know that sounds really lofty, but I genuinely believe that because so much of what we do that is damaging we do because we feel unfulfilled, we don't feel enough, you know, we're trying to live up to expectations and shoulds that we've been fed since we were kids, Uh, you know, and I think what happens when you find something that helps you get out of bed in the morning, it shifts the needle on, um, you know, the way we feel in the world and, and our enoughness.
1: Yeah, and we don't know. So, say your podcast, for example, you through your work, you know, you've had so many episodes of the podcast. Every one of those will have ripples in a different person's pond, and once you inspire one other person, they go on to inspire others and others and others. So we can never really quantify what effects our actions have the important thing is that we're all engaged in doing something and that we're all you know as part of this movement that we're all diverse like embracing what we love means that there are the podcasts out there spreading good stuff there are writers there are scientists there are people looking on in the forest there are artists and musicians we need all of them so we need everyone even if you think your thing you know in 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 your family homeschool group or whatever it is, if you think, oh, that won't make a difference, it does. We Mm -hmm. need all the homeschool teachers. We need everybody. 100%.
0: Um, And I think that's an interesting thing to unlearn though too is like we are trained to look for the results of our output. You know, it's like how many people does this thing reach right now and, you know, what is the the flow and impact of what I've just said in the immediate kind of in the immediate moment. That's not how influence works, I don't think, and it's not how those ripples work, as you say, because we may and we will never know how one act of kindness or one, you know, I often think about like picking up rubbish when my kids were at soccer training, right? No one gave me a pat on the back. I wasn't doing it for that, but maybe someone else saw me do it and next time they were at soccer training with their kids, they stopped and picked up 10 pieces of rubbish, like that kind of thing. We'll never know, but that doesn't mean it's um, any less powerful or important. Um so you you sort of mentioned it before that your work is about communicating big ideas and you do it with such um clarity and simplicity and I'm curious does that kind of ability to clarify big picture issues and complex issues come naturally to you like have you always been able to do that or is that something that you know you you actively spend time doing it kind of interests me because So many of the problems facing us can feel overwhelming and complicated. Um, And I guess, yeah, I'm just curious about your process because you do it so beautifully.
1: Before I started publishing drawings a few years ago on Instagram and Facebook, it was just like something for me. (laughs) So, you know, if I'd read a book that I really enjoyed or saw a documentary and there were some key points I really liked and wanted them to sink in, I'd go away to my... Um, drawing book and I'd sketch them out and that was kind of I did it in high school as well you know if we were learning something really dense in legal studies or in a science subject I'd, I'd draw little memory triggers it was always with me I also keep a journal and a lot of my journals are visual so I'll draw like a comic strip instead of writing out what happens and everyone that sees this stuff goes, oh, that's great. You should make a book or you should share it or whatever. But I just thought, oh, nah, I don't think anyone would want to see this. And then finally I got the confidence to start doing some drawings. I think my first ones were around Plastic Free July, <laughs> like four years ago. And they went really well and got really good feedback. I thought, oh, that's all right. I can try a couple more. And that's kind of how it started. But analytical lens, I guess it's just, it's always kind of been how I see the world. I think that that's why I studied journalism. It's how can we bring this information to the people? How can mm-hmm. we make this you know scientific explanation or this really wordy and academic text? How can we make it accessible? How can we make it exciting? How can we make it so that it's motivating for people that I always feel like the conduit between those two things? And when I discovered, that I, I didn't have to do fine art to be an artist. I could actually be an illustrator, which is much more simple and quick way of doing art. I realized, oh, this is a great tool for that. Mm. This is a great tool for explaining things, for inspiring action, for for showing what's possible. You know, for imagining things that are really hard to explain in words. But you can draw some little characters at a farmer's market, and and all of a sudden it comes to life. So it was, yeah. A, a huge step a leap forward for me to discover oh illustration firstly exists it's a thing and secondly I could do that and thirdly oh I've already been doing that how about I just use that style um and that's part of you know when I say it brings so much meaning in my life it's being able to repackage all this information that I come across as someone who you know studies to teach permaculture design courses and like we're building a house at the moment, you know, you, you come across a lot of complex information that maybe isn't packaged that well um, in your life and I kind of poured all that up and then when I'm in the mood for it, shoot it out the other side in the in the form of these illustrations and people go, yes, I, I never knew how to explain white privilege before and there it is. It's great. So <laughs> it, it feels like I'm vibing, you know, something, something hitting the mark. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and that to me is every time I see your work, um, that's always the response that I see over and over again is people going, yes, this is it. You know, you've perfectly summed up my thoughts or, you know, this thing, this economic model that I've never been able to explain to someone. I could just show them this picture. Uh, and I, I think it's brilliant. Um, and it's such a like a gentle invitation to join the conversation rather than something that feels gatekeeper you know.
1: Yeah, and it's so important, you know, we have a lot of work to do with climate change, with social justice, with biodiversity loss, there are big issues, living in this day and age means living in the shadow of these huge society-wide complex issues, and hearing statistics about how bad they are has been shown to detract from people's effectiveness Mm. we hear something that makes us feel disempowered we're more likely to turn away to not want to deal with it um, become apathetic become depressed so the flip side of that is that if we hear messaging that is empowering that shows us what we can do that shows us that other people are doing things well and they're having a great time at it there's an invitation to step up and get on board and that brings out the best in people and so once I started learning about the, the the science behind this, behind why we either shy away from climate action or move towards it, I thought, wow, this is it's really simple. Frame everything in the positive. You know, there's there's a, a a good and a bad side to every story. Go after the positive one, because that's been proven to help people feel good about it, to feel engaged, to step up. And that in in the world that we're living in now, images are inherently shareable Mm -hmm. and one image can be seen by millions of people almost instantaneously. So make them bright, make them fun. Using cartoons actually draws people into an issue where text can exclude some people. Um, Not everybody enjoys reading. Not everybody had a great time at school. Uh, Not everybody has time in their lives. There's a lot of information overload going on. But an image is quick. It's easy. It sums up um, an issue. And people can then take that and share it with their family and friends and kind of put their own, you know, it brings ownership, individual ownership to that issue. And they say, oh, yeah, that one about the farmer's market really relates to my mum because I know she was thinking of going, I'll share it with her. And then that person's being an activist just through that, Small act. So I feel very blessed to have the the ability to create these images at a time when images are so crucial to moving these conversations forward, to empowering individuals, to explaining complex ideas in a way that makes us feel excited and not afraid. yeah it's a very it's a a weird time for an artist to be able to have Instagram at your fingertips as problematic as that multinational company is it's it's enabled a lot of positive action and um, collectivization as well
0: Mm, and I think seeing it as a tool you know it is a tool it is not your reason for being it is not like the out it's not the end result of your work it is a tool for getting more of what you have to share in front of more people to me that's always a helpful way of thinking about platforms like Instagram is just use it as a tool you pick it up to do a job and then you put it down and you you know you do other jobs it is an interesting time though I imagine to be creating um you know visual work <laughs>
1: well because I think you know I was like 20 years ago what did I guess you either got a job with a newspaper or you you didn't illustrate you went and got another
0: job <laughs> I guess right. that's what happened <laughs> or you partner with like a children's author or something like that and- <laughs> sort of it um that's it I mean it's it's shifted so much um, but also I mean by virtue of you taking part in it it is shifting the conversation too you know they neither of those things exist in a vacuum it kind of together they're building this momentum uh where I think the idea of having positive solutions-based conversations is starting to become if not a default definitely an option that people recognize rather than what so often happens, myself included, you know, we get overwhelmed, we get bogged down, we get terrified um, of the heaviness, of the enormity of the issues facing the world. Um, do you I mean, do you go there yourself? Do you find yourself ever feeling that heaviness? And if so, do you have um, ways to kind of work through it?
1: There's this temptation to think that if we're not, you know, lashing ourselves with the horrible statistics that were not actually engaging properly. There's been a lot of fantastic work done into solutions-based journalism where, say, a whole forest has been logged. That's very sad. And we could talk about the emissions from that and the soil degradation and how long it will take to recover that ecosystem and how many animals died and blah, blah, blah. Or we could go from the solutions-based viewpoint and say... Um, focus on say uh, the person that lives next to that logged forest and how they've started replanting trees that were actually endemic to that region, and they've had great results on their property. And they're hoping now that it was sad the forest was logged, but there's an opportunity to discuss with council and you know bring it back better than ever or whatever. And so you're still talking about the same issue, but still holding the sadness of of the forest that was, but in a way that actually. Is motivating and exciting, and so yeah, that's the first thing I wanted to say. The second thing is that my my partner Charlie um, and I both do activism through our art. He's a musician, and we have very different ways of holding the the big heavy stuff. He can't deal at all, so he's off Facebook. He can't read the news. Um, <laughs> he only reads certain books. Whereas I'm there with like a Bill McKibben book, you know, right in the thick of it, like, yes, tell me, tell me everything. And then I can draw about it. So (laughs) I've kind of found my outlet that means I can see the very scary and negative, say, realities around climate change and what the future will be like. I can see that through the lens of how do I communicate this and what can we do about it? Mm -hmm. Whereas for some people that's a bridge too far and really if, if it makes you depressed, stop. It's, it's not doing you any good. It's at the end of the day, it's the way that information is being packaged. We can we can say, yes, it's all over and we're going to reach eight degrees and a thousand meters sea level rise, and we're just done for. We could say that, but that's also just one scenario of many. So having that awareness that this is this person's point of view, this is this modeling that they ran, this is what this scientist came up with in their you know narrower field of research and and we can hold that but we can also look at that same information from a different viewpoint that makes us feel empowered Mm. so yeah I'm I'm, I've kind of got this invincibility shield somehow where I can read all this stuff and it's fine and I, I really think it's because I then put it into a funny drawing and send it out to the world um,
0: but I think it's also
1: therapy
0: yeah exactly exactly it's the kind of getting it's the the self knowledge that comes with time you know and maturity and figuring out how you operate um and I think sometimes certainly it sounds like for you um and for me in certain situations having more information is empowering more than anything because and I was thinking um about last year, my dad got really sick and I found myself suddenly eyeballs deep in medical information that I never knew that I wanted to know about. (laughs) But I was asking so many questions. I'm like, give me all of the scenarios, give me all the information, because then I can turn around and share it with my family in a way that, you know, gives people a clear sense of the, you know, the possible scenarios, but also what is being done to help him, you know. And um, yeah, I think it's just learning about ourselves like your partner sounds like I am in other instances which is like actually I can't deal with that right now um you know and I think being gentle with yourself in whatever way that that kind of looks is important um so you work with kids as well as a permaculture educator I can can I mean I can imagine that would be a really positive hope-filled way of engaging with permaculture um how do you find kids react to you know the overarching principles of it
1: yeah it's i mean it's important work right because Mm. most teachers and parents are of an age where we grew up with messaging around changing light bulbs and recycling and not much else yep and so kids are looking towards people who are older than them for guidance but the people older than them don't necessarily have the right things to say so I had a conversation with my nephew when he was a couple years ago when he was nine and I said what do you think about climate change and he said oh it's really scary I said well what are what are they what's the discussion happening at your school he said oh the teacher doesn't really know she said we could recycle and maybe plant trees and that's about it and he said i don't i don't i don't understand the connection there i don't know how that's going to turn things around in the short time we had and i was like yeah i was asking similar questions at your age and it's a shame that you're getting similar answers to what i got (laughs) so we go in there we do school incursion programs um we're hoping one day to have tours here at, at the place that we're putting together um And the kids, I mean, the conversations children are having around these big issues are very sophisticated. They understand social justice on a level that most adults don't. They understand climate justice. They understand the world that we're heading into and they want to do something about it. Teenagers particularly have so much energy. Remember being a teenager and you just, you know, it's like, oh, I just want to do something. All right, I'll go get drunk behind the, you know, fire station or whatever, (laughs) down the beach. Like, these days teenagers are actually putting that energy into activism. Yep. So we go in and we talk about what, what concerns us and kids are very good at expressing these sorts of feelings and emotions and you get more sophisticated answers than we do in adult permaculture classes. Mm. And then we talk about what, what permaculture is and that it's just kind of like a framework of, Solutions activism and and thinking about ethics and our principles, our values. Um, you can call it whatever you like. You don't have to call it permaculture. And then we talk about what solutions are actually out there, what things we can do today, what things we can do next year, what things we can do in ten years' time, what things we can do as individuals, households, communities. So there's all these different levels of action, and we're we're showing kids what a worm farm looks like within this broader holistic context of how Drawing down carbon in soil is important. You know, we tend to underestimate what children are yeah. capable of understanding, but at the same time, they know they're heading into really uncertain futures and what sort of world will there be for their children? We don't know. So having these big conversations is so important. And if you, even, you know, the youngest, little, four- and five-year-olds at school, they get this stuff. So especially if you can package it with art and music, I mean, it just, it brings the whole thing together and it feels, you know, I'm, I'm looking towards creating more and more resources that people, you know, if I can't make it in person to your school because I'm not local to you, teachers can download it. They can use these resources. They can print the stuff off, you know, just making it easier for teachers who have very difficult jobs and they're very overloaded and time poor and they're doing mm-hmm. a great job as it is. so. Um yeah, helping families and teachers to have those conversations as well is something that hopefully will get done in the future. It's definitely on the to-do
0: list. And, I, I mean, what's the reaction when you talk to kids about solutions and actions they can take today? What uh, I'm thinking about my daughter who's 12, she's nearly 13, and any time that we can talk practicalities is I can almost see her shoulders drop a little bit in terms of, oh, thank God, like there's something I can do, you know. Do you see that response in the kids that you work with?
1: Yeah. Um, it's partly saying, you know, there, there are ways that people living in, say, middle-class society can actually live in a way that is regenerative. So I said that before, it's, it, you know, sustainable can, has kind of come to mean we're doing no bad but regenerative takes it a step further and we're actually doing good and it is possible for people to live in this world and do good. Now it's tricky <laughs> but showing that there are examples of this, showing that even if we, we can't be perfect we can be better and that by doing small things it moves us in that right direction. So yes nine-year-old nephew you're right recycling isn't going to save the world today but if you're thinking about that now and maybe you then next year do a waste audit of your school and take a huge amount of organic matter out of landfill and put it into your school composting program and then the next year you do an energy audit of your school and realize that just by turning off the um, hot water heaters over the holidays you can save 60 percent on your power bill without any upfront cost or inconvenience you know these things tend to snowball mm. so that is the link between making your own sourdough and and drawing down carbon and helping the planet and that's really what we focus on with kids like yeah we're going to do these fun activities together now we're going to learn how to grow a vegetable garden this is why it's important in the broader context because we're cutting down our food miles we're cutting down on Our reliance on industrial agriculture, we're drawing down carbon into the soil. But also, if we get this step, then we're going to take another step tomorrow. And imagine over our lifetimes, how many steps we would have taken. And also, as we said before, the ripple effects from all of those actions will be the ones inspiring other people. So you've really got to link the small daily actions with the bigger picture. Of course, um, recycling this bottle here isn't going to save the world, but it, it's got me thinking about where this bottle came from and will I buy it tomorrow and that snowballs onto other bigger and even more important things.
0: Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right that, you know, tying the two together, the small daily actions with the reasons, the bigger reasons why is so important. And I see it all the time and I completely understand why it happens. Um, parents try to protect their kids from the reality like the big scary reality the big picture um, out of a sense of you know not wanting to scare them but they know about it I mean if kids who are five and six years old know about whatever like the meme of the week is they know about the realities of climate change because they hear stuff they're clever they absorb things so instead of hiding it you know it's bringing those things together and saying yes this is the big picture, and yes this is what we're going to play with today and experiment with today and you know see what tomorrow brings i'm curious about your relationship with creativity um outside of work do you ever draw a distinction between like creative play just for fun and the creative work of your work oh
1: this question is big um (laughs) before i started illustrating for a living all these people said don't illustrate for a living. You can't do what you love and it'll ruin it and all the advice that people love to give. And I said, never. (laughs) Nothing will ever ruin drawing for me. And then there was a point somewhere halfway through last year I thought I just feel like a factory drawing little characters all day, every day, which is interesting, right, because the drawing side of it. It's what I've always done. It's, I love, you know, little kids do it. You make marks and you do two dots and a line and all of a sudden you made a face. It's just this magical thing that you can do with your hand and bring to life a whole scenario in front of your eyes and then show it to other people. And, and, and there's skill behind it and you get better and better each time. And so you, you're always building on the last. But nowadays I think what really excites me is um you know I do client work as well so people mm-hmm. like uh, councils that have like a net zero plan will get in touch and and you know help them to bring that to life in a in a visual way or you know I've worked with Costa and David Holmgren and you know people on their books bringing their ideas to life so I love when they come to me and they say hey there's this idea and then the sort of the design phase of how I turn that idea into something that will be accessible for people. That's what I love so much now. And then the drawing side of it is like, all right, I I do this to to get the idea, to bring it to fruition. But also I was just doing a lot, you know, I was kind of like six days a week at at the desk.
0: Mm.
1: And and for anyone who runs a small business or who is a freelancer, it's not like work ends. You can't just go home. You don't really have a weekend. You're just on all the time. So I think I really felt that last year, but I've recovered now and I really love it again. But, yeah, I just I seldom have time to draw for myself. I mean, the stuff I release on Facebook and Instagram, I really see as mine because no one pays me to do that. Um, It's kind of my free expression for the world. Uh, But even then, I'm kind of squeezed to fit that in between other projects and we're building a house at the moment. I'm part of an intentional community now so that there's a lot of great projects that we're doing here that I want to be involved in but they take time as well but one practice that I have maintained since I was 17 is keeping a journal so I write almost every day and if I'm going to start a day of work I always start writing a couple pages in the journal and that I mean, it's a different form of creative expression. Sometimes, like I said, I'll I'll illustrate it. A lot of times it's writing. But it still taps into that same creative voice mm. somehow. Yeah. And that, that that really centers me and grounds me. And I like that it's not drawing. It, it kind of uses like a different part of me to be able to write um and express that creativity and you know, reflect on what's going on in my life. And then and then I switch into work mode. But yeah, it's it's <laughs> It's, um, it's been a journey. I, I, I did a drawing yesterday, actually, it was like a painting. Like a, I used to do portraiture and I'd exhibit portraiture and still life and landscape and I'm trained in fine art and I even went to Italy once in my early 20s to train in portraiture and, and figurative work. And so to go back and draw a portrait for somebody um, was actually really nice. I, I missed it. <laughs>
0: It's like you said, like different parts of your brain and your creative process, you know, and get to stretch that that kind of muscle again, and you know increase the blood flow to it. yeah, I just I ask because I'm fascinated by creativity, and that's sort of my overarching theme, I guess, for the year is you know create and making space for creation. and playing around with what that actually looks like and you know then you you spoke about like the tension between the work and the play of creativity particularly with drawing but then you mentioned you know you're part of an intentional community and you're building a house and to me they're both acts of creation and creativity as well what is the intentional community like what does that look like
1: i I moved over to the bottom corner of western australia one year ago and we bought a quarter acre block in an intentional community so there's 18 um, quarter acre house lots here half on the north side half on the south side there's 44 acres of forest in the middle and we are owners in common of that forest or guardians in common of that forest and there's also a whole bunch of like half acre common blocks of land strewn about the place Um, so we have community meetings once a month we have celebrations probably once a week where someone will start up their pizza oven or you know someone else will set up some trestle tables on the road and we'll come by and bring a plate of food or we'll get all the families with kids together and the kids will just run around and we'll have a sharing circle or something like that it's really 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 nice um there are fruit trees that we all manage and harvest from there's areas for community gardens, although a lot of people do have space for their own gardens in their own place. And we're all kind of moving together towards making this a really thriving, thriving sustainability hub. So one day we'll have courses here, we have a community center, we pay rates each year that go into a pool that then help us to manage the forest for fire safety and meet our legal commitments and options for fundraising and grants and stuff that you can't do on your privately owned land but as a community that creates all of these possibilities so it was really important for me to live in some form of community since since I did my trip overseas I've really focused on that I spent four years living in a different sort of community in Victoria and before that I've probably stayed in over a dozen intentional communities all through south and central america for you know a month or more Mm -hmm. yeah it's just the best thing you walk down the little dirt roads and you see the kids running around and your neighbor offers you a whole bag full of what did we get yesterday passion fruit so good (laughs) and especially now we're building we have uh, power from our neighbor we have water from our other neighbor we're borrowing the excavator from our neighbor it's just everything kind of you know, we talk a lot about self-sufficiency. It's really about community sufficiency.
0: yeah.
1: And an in intentional community is like a instant cup of soup version of that. You just, we had it, you know, the, the moment we moved over here, we had it. And, and so we, we're not paying rent at the moment. We own a um, converted fire truck, which is now a little house truck that runs on waste vegetable oil that my partner put together a couple years ago. And we've parked that in the forest here at our intentional community. So to get to our place where we're gardening and maybe one day we'll get around to building a house on. Um, we just ride our bikes over there or walk over there. It's a couple hundred meters, do some stuff, come back to the house truck for lunch. We get to live in the forest. There's a compost toilet, there's a hot water shower in the bush that someone set up a few years ago. It's just the nicest thing. And everyone from the community drops by, you know, the kids come to play in the house truck and crack macadamia nuts on the deck and We've always got cheese and crackers there for anyone and a cup of tea for anyone who drops by. So a really safe, wonderful place. And people have replicated this kind of pattern in a cul-de-sac or in their streets or the great crew called Eco Berbia up in Fremantle who have done it in their neighbourhood, in the city, and gotten people on board. Amazing. You don't don't need to live in an intentional community for that to happen. But, yeah, it sure helps. I'm so happy to be
0: here. Uh, and you can tell, like, just looking at you, I can't help but grin because you're grinning talking about it. And it is just, it speaks to something. Um, and I'm an, I, I'm an introvert, right? I'm very much, I enjoy and need my own space and time. And still, that speaks to something like primal in me, you know, that need to have genuine community, um, not. Neighbours that you wave to, which is lovely, um, but, you know, genuine community where you're able to share and um, feel that sense of belonging, um, mm-hmm. you know. And I think I, I'm really interested about that ecoberbia um, kind of movement too because I think that it speaks to our general lack of community community. Um, and even if we can't necessarily articulate what it is and why we feel adrift, I think the reaction to that, the fact that they're able to get that up and running in the city, says that there are so many more people than we might think who feel similarly kind of lost in a sea of people. But I am so happy for you, for that for the community that you're living in, and wish that I could be someone who could come and live with you. Because <laughs> it sounds phenomenal. <laughs>
1: When and if we ever finish our house, there'll be a spare room with your name on it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate it. Um, So when like you're going through the process of building your place, what have you taken from your years of working in permaculture um, into the the house that you're creating?
1: Oh, it's it's amazing actually, because if you'd asked me a year and one month ago, I was always a person at permaculture courses saying, you do not need land to do permaculture. And I still stand by that. I said, ownership is bunk. We don't need to own. We can rent. We can also look at alternative options. So I haven't paid rent in 12 years because I have traded my skills and time for living on people's land or in people's houses who have you know, too much to do and need someone else around. And I understand that's not the solution for everybody, but it is a solution. It is one of many options. So there, and you see this a lot in the sustainability movement, there's a lot of creative solutions to housing and affordability. And um, we have here in our community, somebody does own a quarter acre of land and she's put some converted sea containers and tiny houses around so that other people can live there for free because she wants someone around. She doesn't want to feel alone. So I was very strong on that and I, I will never own land and I will never own a house and I can still be an activist and still do permaculture and, you know, what have you. And then we we found this place. It was just so perfect. And the thing about living in community is that the land is a quarter of the price of the block next door. I mean, a lot of people here are very low income and can only afford to be here because it's so cheap because not everybody wants to live in community, I guess. Mm -hmm. It, It was an interesting, I guess, shift of my identity to go from being a person who had committed long term and my partner is the same to just being of use to those who have extra maybe an extra cottage on their land and and need someone around which for me was a great way to slot into an existing community wherever i happen to be um to now thinking wow if, if i'm putting trees in the ground potentially they could be there and i could be enjoying the fruits of those trees when i'm in my 70s or 80s if i live to be that old that's wow that's like a a huge shift so yeah over the course of the month it just went from that'll never be me to oh yeah <laughs> why not COVID's changed a lot for a lot of people I could move across the country
0: <laughs> well, exactly you know and it's allowing yourself to change as well you know um I think sometimes we get st- stuck in the idea of what you know our identity means we should be doing and allowing ourselves giving ourselves permission to reframe that Um, and I think COVID has certainly been the catalyst for a lot of people whether positively or otherwise to reframe that question um, of you know how am I showing up in the world and is it serving me Um, is it serving my values Uh, but I yeah I think it's brilliant that you're like "Ah, okay I've always said this but this also feels true and I'm gonna go and do this and plant trees and you know
1: it was so interesting to then land and say, okay, there's this quarter acre and next to our block is half an acre of common land that um, if if it's not managed by someone like us living nearby, we, we just have to, you know, slash it every fire season and ends up costing the community money. So we designed our block and in the, the permaculture design course that I was talking about before, um, the main project is normally a land-based design. You learn all this stuff and then you put it, put it into action by making a beautiful drawing of what your place might look like. And I realised, wow, teaching about this for all these years has really helped me design my own place. And then we're designing the house and same thing, teaching about sustainable housing design for so long was really useful. Um, we, I knew exactly what to do. Mm. And then, oh, you know, there's this space, we want to plant all the fruit trees. Okay, we know how to do that. And so it's like real self discovery. I'd been working for so long on other people's projects, but when it came to doing my own, it was it took me by surprise that I was so well prepared. I knew how big the garden beds need to be, and I I know I want a netted orchard because putting up nets on the fruit trees every year once they're thirty years old is really hard. Um, But all these lessons that I've learned over the past ten years of traveling around and helping other people all kind of came together for our block design and I mean that said we've changed the design a thousand times but (laughs) the main principles are there and now we're expanding out to help our neighbours as well who haven't done permaculture courses Um, this is a permaculture community it's written into our bylaws that we follow the permaculture ethics but not everyone's had the chance to do a course so you know we can share that knowledge and help them out and get to know them and I mean it's always a great thing when people are feeling empowered and and proud of The space that they're creating. So yeah, it was it was odd. It was like we hired someone who knew what they
0: were doing, and then we turned
1: around and it was just us standing there. (laughs) How did that happen?
0: (laughs) I mean, but that's like kind of had you told yourself ten years ago that that's where you'd land, it wouldn't necessarily make a lot of sense. But it's those ripples, you know, those ripples ripple out into the world, but they also ripple into ourselves too. And you know, the change may not be something that we would have necessarily expected but it doesn't make it any less right when it when it lands you know
1: yeah it was I mean. a nice surprise
0: yeah <laughs> totally <laughs> um brenda thank you so much for your time and for sharing um some of your story i appreciate it so much and i appreciate the the work that you put into the world um and hope you know that it really does ripple out in myriad ways it's um it's important and yeah i just hope i want you know that Thanks Brooke, it's been so lovely talking
1: to you. It's
0: been a pleasure.